0: Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly's podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Giles from MediCon Medical Publishers, in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly offers in-depth interviews with the most highly respected experts in the medical community who weigh in on landmark research and trending topics affecting the healthcare professionals. This episode, we have two really interesting and very different interviews. Physicians Weekly speaks with our regular contributor who's a registered physician and a medical malpractice attorney who goes by the alias Dr. Medlaw. She talks about how management services organizations, which have become very popular as a way to delegate the business of a practice so that doctors can focus on medicine, factor into the corporate practice of medicine, in addition to other risks associated with corporate practice of medicine. If you would like to suggest a topic for discussion or contribute to Physicians Weekly, please email pwpodcast at physiciansweekly.com. But first, I speak with Professor Lucas Sommer from the University of Zurich in Switzerland. Last week, we had an interview with Dr. Osama Amro about the pain management strategies and the management of autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, or ADPKD. Did you know that ADPKD is actually caused by faulty cilia? which are like hair-like structures that line the renal tubules. Cilia are actually on almost all of our cells, and they act, in fact, much like antenna, interpreting signals from their surroundings. Professor Sommer talks to us about his team's research, which has shown that cilia are really important in some of the early beginnings of cancer in neural crest cells, including melanoma. It's a really great refresher in some developmental as well as cell biology. Enjoy listening. So Dr. Sommer, thank you so much for being here on Physicians Weekly Podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself?
1: I'm a mental biologist by training, working since quite some time on so-called neurocrest stem cells. And these are cells which are vertebrate invention. Uh, these cells give rise to, to various parts of the peripheral nervous system, most parts of the peripheral nervous system, so neurons and glial cells. But what is surprising about these cells, they have a really broad potential, almost as broad as the embryonic stem cells, and give rise also to craniofacial structures, uh, such as cartilage and bone, also smooth muscle cells in the outer in tract of the heart, for instance, or our melanocytes. So basically you have a cell which comes from the neuroectoderm, But then why is a potential, which is, as I said, almost as broad as embryonic stem cells? And our question was always, how can it be that such a multipotent cell can choose so many different fates in the vertebrate embryo? And while studying this cell type and trying to understand the mechanism regulating multipotency in neurocrest stem cells, we then realized that also in adult tissue, in particular in the skin, cells that look like cells can be induced in neurocrest derivatives, i.e. peripheral nerves, or also in the menomocyte component by either injury or an oncogenic cue. So now we are studying how neurocrest stem cell properties play a role or are implicated in tumorigenesis, in particular in tumors derived from the neurocrest. And we are focusing there on right. the enoma. And we are studying also how neurocrest stem cell features are induced in injury in peripheral nerves. So basically peripheral nerve cells de-differentiate and then they become like neurocrest stem cells, like embryonic counterparts, and then are involved in the wound healing process. And while right, doing so that,
0: there's a
1: regeneration and yeah. a regeneration, tumor genesis exactly. Yeah. And while doing that, uh trying to analyze mechanisms, particularly melanoma, we realized that one way that the melanocyte turns into a melanoma initiating cell is by losing its cilia, and that this then activates. The wind signaling pathway and together with then obviously oncogenic cue that the is that are present in the cell, you would boost melanoma initiation as a matter of fact, but also metastatic melanoma. So you have a plethora of mechanisms induced or controlled by a epigenetic regulator, EZH2, that would control ciliogenesis and that this de- deconstruction of cilia are then involved in actual acquisition of oncogenic features of melanoblast lineage, so to speak.
0: Right. Is it just sort of like when kidney cells lose cilia, they sort of lose communication with their neighboring cells and they sort of lose that tight tubular structure that they tend to make and That sort of in turn fosters a proto-oncogenic environment that may allow additional mutations to occur because some of the mitoses are affected as a result of this. It's it's a very low penetrant situation where most of the cells do fine, but some cells it doesn't work well. Is it similar to that?
1: Uh, Melanoma is not an epithelial cancer. However, many of the processes which we see in epithelial cancer, such as an EMT-like process, also occurs in in melanoma. But it's not primarily this kind of loss of adhesiveness that seems to underlie tumorigenesis induced by ETH2. Rather, it seems to be really a de-differentiation program. So they change their differentiation, their, their kind of identity, if you wish. And we acquire, based on this epigenetic regulation, we acquire kind of like stem cell properties. And that then right. allows them to proceed and, and, and form a tumor. And associated with this is, as I said, loss of cilia, which is directly, so many cilia genes are directly controlled by EZH2. That was the basis then for a paper we had in Cancer Cell some time ago, and which we published. But meanwhile, we actually started to work on other neurocrest-derived tumors and realized that there it's just the opposite, like cells that derive from glia or tumors that derive from glia. These are peripheral nerves. So there's malignant mm-hmm. peripheral nerve sheet tumors. You would say, well, that's very similar to a neurocrest-derived tumor, but it's just the opposite. So, there they need cilia for tumorigenesis. And if you deplete cilia there, you counteract tumorigenesis. And that's basically the topic I will talk about that we have different types of tumors from the same origin, if you want, but use cilia in completely different manners. So, it's not just like a quotation mark, just yeah, cilia control somehow adhesiveness or so, but rather they control in very cell-type-specific context, the tumorigenic program. And in one side, on one side, they suppress the tumorigenic program. On the other side, they promote the tumorigenic program. Also, the cell of origin of the tumor looks very similar, namely kind of a de-differentiated neurocrest stem cell-like cells. That's a bit the story I'll talk and about.
0: what are the metabolic changes that occur in those cells? There oh, must be some pretty profound changes.
1: Absolutely. So we have also found actually transcription factors that are important for neurocrest stem cell development that control Kind of meta- metabolism during neurocrest development, stem cell development, and the same transcription factor also required for melanoma initiation. We haven't really looked that into that in the in the glial tumor. This is really a new mouse model that we have just established, and where we realized this link to cilia. But metabolic changes occur, and it's not just glycolysis, or force and so on, oxygen, but. Rather, it's really occurring on a very broad level. Many processes are affected. Nucleotide synthesis, amino acid synthesis, the lipid synthesis, et cetera, is all affected and associated with, with the melanoma initiation event. Whether that's regulated by celia, we don't know, but it's certainly regulated by transcription factor characteristic for this de-differentiated celia-dependent or celia-loss-dependent state. So. Fascinating.
0: Really interesting. So what are some of the next steps that you're going to try and tackle with your group?
1: So the next steps that we are trying to understand is that twofold. So first of all, it has been it become apparent that these you new know, stem cell like states are not only important for initiation of the tumor and but also on progression. And we try to understand how this tumor progression, in particular metastasis formation, is also linked to this de-differentiation program. So the heterogeneity of cells in a tumor and a certain subpopulation is more prone for metastasis formation. And what we have found is actually that they interact with other cell types, in particular at the immune cells. So that immune cells, innate immune cells can Interact with particular melanoma cells in a more efficient manner than with others. And we found that these de-differentiated cells that are again induced by loss of cilia, that these cells can better evade the recognition by immune cells. And, and that really brings us another part of the in the field where, you know, like ah, okay, heterogeneity, de differentiation is linked to how the cells see the immune system. And regeneration aspect where we try to see how stem cell-like cells are important then in wound healing, And right? So, so one side is, is the cancer, the other side the wound. And you can say, yeah, cancer is never healing wound. And so things are kind of apparently happening in parallel, so to speak.
0: Well, thank you so much, Professor Sommer, for your time and explaining your research.
2: Physicians Weekly is back again with our regular contributor, Dr. Medlaw, a board certified radiologist and medical malpractice attorney. Dr. Medlaw, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. There has been increasing discussion of the corporate practice of medicine as a problem when investors get involved in medical practices. What is the problem there? Well, it
3: comes down to the core principle of medical practice itself. A doctor is a fiduciary for their patients. So what that means is a doctor is bound by the highest ethical and legal standards to act only for the patient's good. But you know, there's that old saying, the business of business is business. So the goal of the investor is to line the pockets of themselves and their shareholders So it's immediate potential for a conflict of interest because uh, profit goals can overshadow patient care. So outside investors are now becoming very involved in the medical space, and this is something that anyone running a practice that may be being courted, let's say by a hedge fund, or is working for a practice that is being courted, uh, should be very wary about. So how does the corporate practice of medicine address this? Well, what this is, is it's a doctrine that addresses that possible conflict of purpose by holding that a non-physician with an interest in a practice should not be able to influence medical decisions. When would it apply? Well, there are basically two situations that will red flag that there may be the corporate practice of medicine going on. The first is when treatment and diagnosis decisions are actually taken out of the hands of doctors and instead are controlled, even in part, by non-physicians.
2: So how is that actually different from insurance having an impact on medical decisions?
3: That's a great question. The corporate practice of medicine relates to the actual care that's being given, not to the payment for it. So... Insurance companies that deny payment don't come under it, but say, uh, you know, a hedge fund investor group that forbids the doctor to order certain tests because they're too costly would come under it. Now, the second situation where it comes up is when the non-physicians running the business entity are actually being compensated for patient care
2: that it's the doctors who are carrying out. But can't they make a profit? That is why they invested. Oh, they certainly can. But
3: this doesn't refer to corporate profits. What it refers to is when the doctor is just a billing beard for the business side that couldn't bill for the care itself. Do all states have the corporate practice of medicine doctrine? Uh, No. For example, Florida and Ohio don't. So there, a non-physician can own a practice outright. Uh, However, most states do have it. It's either... By a direct prohibiting statute, or it's cobbled together uh, through decisions by courts or medical boards, all laws against fee splitting with non doctors.
2: Are the states that have this equally strict in how they apply it?
3: Uh, No. Some states, like New York and New Jersey and Illinois, they're super strict. Only doctors can own a business that provides medical services. In most cases, though, There are exceptions. So physicians and non-physicians can jointly own a business that practices medicine if certain boundaries are in place to ensure that medical decision-making remains in the hands of the doctors.
2: Let's say that a court or a medical board is evaluating a business relationship to determine if it violates the corporate practice of medicine. What would they be looking for?
3: Uh, The issue comes down to who's really running the show. So they will look at three basic issues. What is the first? The first is the absolute critical one. All medical decision-making must be by the physicians. Now, this is not just the obvious situation of, you know, a corporate manager Uh, not being able to tell a doctor that they can't order a test or treatment because the manager thinks it's too expensive. It would also extend to situations such as the business side refusing to authorize a medically necessary upgrade of equipment or offering bonuses to staff for carrying out less costly care. In fact, even leasing agreements can be suspect if they're actually molding patient care.
2: So even indirect control or control that is sort of penumbra can violate the corporate practice of medicine.
3: Exactly. The court or medical board will look through all the clever layers that the lawyers wrote into the contract to find out, you know, who's really pulling the strings. What is the next issue? The physician must retain the ability to hire and fire staff. Now, The business side can do stuff like non-clinical staff management. For example, it can run the HR department. But the doctors have to have control over staffing itself and, most critically, over determining whether a staff member's professional work and conduct are adequate.
2: What is the last issue?
3: Again, a big one. All revenues for medical services must be paid to the professional entity. In other words, the doctor. So this is because of different relationships. The patients and the payers have a relationship to the medical provider, and it's that practitioner who's responsible for setting their fees and for the services they're billing for.
2: But what if the business entity is managing the billing? Is that permissible? It's not only permissible, it's
3: very common uh, because – One of the things that's always very attractive to doctors is uh, when a business side handles the billing. And that's fine because they're only doing the operational work to collect the fee. But it's the professional entity, in other words, the doctor, who's the actual collector.
2: Is there a conflict then with paying the business entity?
3: No, that's also fine because now the professional entity, the doctor, is acting through its own contract with the business entity and the patients and the payers have no part in that. Uh, Now, of course, if the business entity is being paid really exorbitantly, you know, way above fair market value for the work it's actually doing, then that would be a red flag that the doctor is just a beard, you know, to funnel the money to the business side.
2: There has been a lot of expansion into adjunct services. Such as at medi spas and wellness centers. Does the corporate practice of medicine apply in those settings?
3: Uh, it may. Uh, some states, uh, like Texas, have specific laws defining that as medical services. In other states, it's less clear. So a doctor should really get clarification from their own state board on whether the service that they are engaged in can come under the corporate practice of medicine before they get involved with investors.
2: How do management services organizations factor into the corporate practice of medicine?
3: Uh, These have become very popular uh, as a way to delegate the business of a practice so doctors can focus on medicine. But such arrangements will be particularly scrutinized as far as the corporate practice of medicine because they have the potential to place non-physicians in operational control of a medical practice. Uh, that this could then extend to medical control is an obvious risk.
2: So how is this dealt with?
3: Uh, We'll talk about uh, MSOs more extensively in the next podcast, but the short answer is that MSOs typically use what's called the friendly PC model. So that's where a state-approved corporation, so it's met all the state requirements, like to be a PC, uh, is owned by the doctors It contracts with the MSO to cover the operational work, but there's also a management services agreement between the medical and the business sides, and that defines that the MSO may not impinge on clinical decisions, including things like equipment, staffing, and treatment choices.
2: What is the penalty if the corporate practice of medicine is violated?
3: Uh, could be pretty harsh. A uh, doctor could face discipline as to their license. I mean, frankly, medical boards are not usually proactive in this, but they could be if it comes out in the course of an investigation. But the most severe penalty will be if a practice and its associated business entity are found by a court or a regulator to have violated the corporate practice of medicine. Then that relationship, which permitted the billing to go on, will be voided back to its beginning. And then the payers, you know, the insurers, that sent them lots of money, can recoup everything they paid and that would be devastating to the practice. So this is not something you want to happen. Dr. Medlaw, thank you again
2: for joining us.
3: Thanks for your chance to talk about this important topic.
0: That's all the time we have for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly.